I fail to see any ameliorative signs for the administration. It just looks to me like they are tobogganing towards Gomorrah. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to the ER. I'm in Washington today, and I'm joined by Susan Hennessy, who is a fellow in national security in governance studies at Brookings. She is also managing editor of the Lawfare blog. And David Sanger, national security correspondent for The New York Times and author of Confront and Conceal, Obama's Secret Wars and Surprising Use of American Power. And calling in from Palo Alto is Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution where she focuses on military history. Have an idea? Email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. You can also, for a couple more weeks, send us your sob stories so that you can get a mug. This seems to be mostly what I do all day long is answer emails from people pleading for a mug. But in a couple of weeks, we're going to cut that down dramatically and sell the mugs. You know, we finally got we finally got the message. You know, if you want to buy a mug, we'll sell you a mug. Otherwise, I've been drinking out of these for a couple of weeks now, and I'm not sure what what price point were you thinking of here. Very high. Price Are your point. fingers <laughs> beginning to web from drinking out of them, David? I, I've noticed that. I've noticed that, Corey. Mm-hmm. The thing Thank is, you. is that David drinks a cup of coffee out of the mug before sending it, which increases the value. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah that that does. exactly, yeah. exactly. That's exactly how we work. So we're going to have a different price for cleaned and uncleaned mugs. Yeah. Is that oh, it? so <laughs> disgusting. Oh, God. So glad to have all you guys back together again. Recently in our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. We haven't talked about Russia in a while, guys, even though it's in the news every single day, sometimes because there are new revelations about Russia and its influence on the Trump administration, sometimes because people trying to protect the Trump administration, like Devin Nunez, my vote for the dumbest man in Washington, end up making things worse while they're doing it. But in the past couple of weeks, we've had James Comey of the FBI suggesting, you know, that this investigation is ongoing and a serious thing. We've had Adam Schiff friend of the Lawfare blog, saying that there is more than circumstantial evidence of collusion here, which he's a serious guy, even if he's partisan in some of his views. I mean, he's a serious guy. And we've had revelations in places like the New York Times and elsewhere of Jared Kushner's relationships with Russian bankers, who, by the way, represent sanctioned banks that he couldn't do any business with, and so on. So the plot seems to be thickening. And I was just interested, all of you guys are such experts in these things. Let me start with you, Susan. What's the state of play right now? On a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being absolute certain impeachment, where are we? 
mean, in terms of sort of impeachment being the end game, I don't know, right? I mean, things we've sort of thrown everything on its head at this point. You would, for any other president, you would say we've we've well sort of crossed the threshold of, you know, there's no way this can be a sustainable administration. Clearly, there's something else at work here. The thing that we sort of crossed the point of no return on is now that Comey has confirmed there is a serious ongoing investigation, and, and he mentioned that it was a counterintelligence investigation, but then uh, made a point of saying, which might also include investigations, inquiries into criminal conduct uh, on the part of U.S. persons, which is always part of a counterintelligence investigation. So sort of noteworthy that he would feel the need to specifically flag that during his testimony. That's going to make it really difficult for the White House to prevent that investigation. It sort of it raises the specter that any kind of interference from here forward is going to be perceived as obstruction of justice. Sort of similarly with, with sort of Nunez's relatively bizarre conduct this week. Relatively bizarre. I, I'm, I'm well, going to say, strike that modifier. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to be sort of kind here, only because I, like I'm concerned about the guy. I, I have no idea why anyone who wasn't sort of having some sort of mental breakdown would have engaged in this course of conduct of sort of coming out claiming that he had evidence. I, I like I guess to vindicate Trump's bizarre claim that Obama had wiretapped him. Then it turns out that he's talking about incidental collection and he's not sure. And and then it's the revelations that he got it during a late night visit to the White House, which he then defended as saying, well, he could have snuck onto the White House grounds without anybody detecting him. I mean, really sort of this bizarre series of events that I, I think has, you know, achieved the exact uh, effect, the exact opposite effect of what the White House intended here, which is uh, there's it's more likely that there's going to be some kind of serious independent inquiry at the end of all of this because he's effectively undermined the credibility of his own investigation and the Hipsy investigations. David, is there something to add to this picture? Yeah, there are a few things, but I think Susan's got it uh, exactly right. So first, if you go back to the the tweet that was the origin of all of this, it was uh, President Trump's argument that President Obama had uh, wiretapped his wires, as he said, at uh, Trump Tower. Two Ps. Two Ps and tapped. And, um, Two P's in a good date for Trump also, but yeah. that's another – sorry. <laughs> so um, his hope at that time was to sort of divert from the Russia stuff. Instead, he ended up focusing everybody much more on the Russia stuff. In fact, we're told that after he issued that tweet on a Saturday morning, he went off to play golf, was pretty happy with himself, came back and found everybody in these crisis meetings. Why were they in crisis meetings? Because there were only two options out here. One, that he had been illegally tapped, in which case that was an outrage and someone needed to investigate it. Or secondly, that there were active FISA warrants out there that were either directed at um, Trump Tower or and people in it or were directed at others who they communicated with, in which case there's a much bigger problem and in investigation. And it turned out it was option B. So – in the week since, and there have been now three weeks since, he has spent his time trying again to come up with other diversions. And uh, Congressman Newman— You mean like his half-hearted attempt to pass the health care yeah, law? Yeah, well, it, it, it changed the subject for a whole week until <laughs> He tried hard for like 24 hours. Yeah, Give no, no. Well, a guy in his right. shape. I mean, <laughs> and then I'm surprised he could get it going for that long. And then Representative Nunes comes along and actually seems to— disqualify himself 
at least um, in the eyes of many who are watching these investigations, as any kind of an impartial or even semi-partial uh, investigator. So well, what's depending that mean? on what we're dealing with here, also sort of getting sort of sailing pretty close to obstruction of justice himself. Could could well be, um, although as he's probably protected as a member of Congress uh, here on uh, you know as the head of this uh, committee. So where are we headed? First, I think the House investigation is pretty much going to be pushed off to the side. It will become either the Senate investigation or they'll end up being forced, which is more likely, I think, to exactly what they've been trying to avoid all this time, which is to have an independent bipartisan commission of some kind that investigates all this. Secondly, we've discovered from the testimony that the FBI's got this active counterintelligence investigation, had it going all last summer, even while we were all focused on, on Hillary Clinton. Uh, Including James Comey was focused on, on, on Hillary Clinton, right? Because you know, yeah, he didn't think of, to bring that up. No, why would he? But uh, for those of us who were busy writing at the time about the Russia hack, we sort of all wish we had known at the time that the, that the FBI was that deeply involved. We knew they were looking at Alpha Bank. We knew they were looking at different communications. We didn't understand what a focused investigation it is. The third thing that we're left with right now, a couple of existing mysteries. So one of them was that Comey said during his testimony that he's looking at active collusion. Collusion would mean someone in the Trump campaign and someone representing Russian intelligence. Now, whether that's on the timing of the release of, say, the Podesta emails or some of the fake news or whether it is on some other element of it, we don't fully know yet. But Although you might be a little suspicious if, for example, the Access Hollywood tape comes out and four hours later WikiLeaks releases a big dump, right? Do you, do you think? I don't know. I might be, but I'm a, like yeah. a conspiracy theorist. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, so, or we might begin to be suspicious if Roger Stone basically admits to that. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, Roger Stone is pretty close to have done that. You know that he's talked to them, and you know what was he talking about? You know, plus the whole thing where he predicted that John Podesta was going to have some trouble before anyone knew that John Podesta's emails had been hacked. I mean, you know, not to go all lawyer on you, but that's that incriminating fact. That is, yeah. Well, that's yeah. That's and and your legal degree is what we need it in exactly. order to exactly. bring that to our attention. I want to point out that Susan's always going all lawyer on us. That's she why does. she's here. Oh. I occupy she does fully. High law. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we love that. The New York Times loves lawfare. I, you guys I, I, wrote this like piece. Everybody I mean, loves lawfare. Did she like and hand you the should. piece during one of these podcasts and then? You guys just ran it the way they wanted, a press release or something? You know, I just I just do whatever Susan tells us mm -hmm. to, to do here. As right? does the world. Yeah. Right. As, as, and as, so it should be. That's so not true. If the world did what Susan told it, we wouldn't be in this mess. That's – no. You know what? That is true. That's true. We would – if Susan had her way, We would Mike be in Pence, some other mess. Mike Pence but 100 percent, we would not be in this particular mess. Yeah. Anyway, that David, were you interrupted there? Can we shift to – uh, Corey's complete refutation of what you said and her defense of Trump. Corey, tear me apart and, <laughs> and, and tell me why every part of that was wrong or say what's on the mug. Satisfying as it would be to shred your line of argument, my friend, <laughs> I must admit that you are right. 
Um, I don't. As it says on the mug. As it says on the yeah, mug. Yeah, David, it, you're exactly right. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was about me, but no, it was probably about him. <laughs> so I, I fail to see any ameliorative signs for the administration. It just looks to me like they are tobogganing towards Gomorrah on this. Tobogganing towards Gomorrah, the next book from Corey Shockey. <laughs> the Illustrated also, Children's Edition. I, I didn't know that it snowed in Gomorrah. <laughs> <laughs> um, as you can see, David's in some of the front seats of the toboggan, yeah, right. <laughs> since he can already see the snow. Um, I... I, too, can't quite figure out what the people who are supposed to be helping the administration are doing. Nunes seems to me, as Susan has said, to have created exactly the vulnerability him being a sock puppet for the White House was supposed to foreclose, which is a special a special commission to investigate or a special prosecutor we're either going to have a 9-11 style commission or we are going to have a special prosecutor looking into this. And that was entirely preventable before David Nunes started uh, behaving That's crazily. That would be not David. How that dare would be you Devin. lump him Dev, in. That would be Devin. As in, you're exactly right, Devin. <laughs> <laughs> Forgive me, please. Um, but... But I also Sanger and think I instantly perked up. I also <laughs> think Devin Nunes's behavior is my favorite corroboration of the best pithy conclusion on this so far, which is from the founder of Lawfare, Ben Wittes, which is that malevolence is being beaten out by incompetence. It usually is in Washington. Yeah, I mean, one thing I, I completely agree with Corey. I think one thing that's worth sort of noting is Mitch McConnell is kind of getting off the hook here. He's like sailing under the radar as though he has nothing to do with any of this. I think it's important to, to roll it back and think about McConnell's calculus from the beginning. He never wanted there to be a Russia investigation. He agreed sort of after the mounting pressure of these revelations and the dossier and sort of drip, drip, drip of, of new information, new revelations. He said, OK, well, I'm not going to allow there to be like a a big new inquiry. I'm just going to say that these intelligence, you know, the intelligence committees, they're going to investigate because that's part of their ordinary job, their regular jurisdiction. So I'm not making any kind, I'm not taking any kind of affirmative step. I'm just saying, well, they're already doing their own jobs. So he has managed to resist the political pressure by saying that these were legitimate investigations. The problem is, is that, you know, Congress typically doesn't investigate presidents of their own party until the costs of not investigating outweigh the costs of investigating politically for them. And so the problem with Nunez's sort of stunt this week is that it has created even more pressure, not just on McConnell, but across sort of Congress, because their constituents are now looking and saying, why aren't you investigating this? And maybe we should start holding you accountable for it. So really, in terms of how the pressure shifts, it all comes back to bear on Mitch McConnell, maybe to some extent Paul Ryan, although I don't think anybody had enough faith in him to expect him to investigate in the first place. Well, doesn't, I mean, I don't want to get too off the track and 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 talk about substance and in, in other areas. What? But, what? Yeah. But but doesn't the failure of the healthcare thing and the way that was handled? I mean, you know, St- Steve Bannon ushered a bunch of Congress people into a room in the White House, 
and said, we're not having a discussion here. I'm telling you what you're going to do, which does not sort of generally produce a good response out of Congress, didn't in this particular case. Don't they, when they behave that way and they alienate Republicans, make it more likely that as as they become a little more radioactive in this kind of area, that you end up with, um, you know, Absolutely some of these other right, outcomes? David. Yes, that the the sort of sweeping arrogance combined with ignorance tends not to be an effective strategy. Most Republicans elected in both houses of Congress outperformed Donald Trump in their in their election this fall. So he never was going to have that strong a hold on them. But then Bannon talking down to them, the president, you know, having occasional meetings with folks, but not understanding the legislation, not being involved in trade-offs that are occurring, not being able to do, you know, his imitation of Lyndon Johnson getting the Great Society legislation passed means that they're even less likely to be beholden to him in future rounds. Okay, so one of the things I want to do is I want to break down this discussion because here's here's what here's what happens in this discussion. And and it's typical because of the short attention spans of Washington and everything else is a lot of things get conflated. So, you know, D- David was talking earlier about Trump's tweet as being seminal in all of this. But actually Trump's tweet is peripheral to all of this. His tweet about Obama and so forth has created its own little kerfuffle around it. But the core issue of Russia, Russian interference and collusion is actually apart uh, from that tweet. Uh, The Republicans, you know, when the House committee had its hearing, it was like bizarre looking glass world where the Democrats were talking about Russia and the Republicans were talking about protected individuals being released, you know, their names being released and all this other kind of stuff, completely separate conversation. And I had a conversation last night. I was on some TV show and I was like in the green room and there was some reporter there. And the guy was like, I don't understand what all this is about. Why shouldn't the, the Trump administration be talking to the Russians? You know, I mean, you know, Russia's an important country. We ought to be having these kind of conversations. And it was like, well, that's not actually the issue either. Uh, although there is a context which suggests perhaps after the Russians do what Dick Cheney called you know, committing an act of war against the United States, there may be some optical, optical issues here. But I want to get to the core question. The core question is Russia sought to interfere in the U.S. election. According to Comey, actually sought to sort of be caught. To, to everybody to know that they were meddling in that election. People from the Trump administration or the Trump team communicated with the Russians in a variety of different kind of ways during the course of the campaign and afterward, which suggest a certain coziness and had some results, had a result in the Republican platform, had a result in post-election activities of people like Flynn talking to Kislyak on the time, right around the time that sanctions were being laid out. Had a result in the fact that Trump as a candidate was willing to attack anything and anybody in the world except Putin. You know, it had an effect on, 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 on sort of the way that they were seeking to approach all these things. And the, the issue is, was any of that illegal, damaging, wrong, unethical, unconstitutional, you know, what what really happened there? That seems to me to be the core issue. 
Where is this going to take us beyond the modality of the investigation? David and Susan, presumably Corey, also you're talking to people in the intelligence community, the law enforcement community, and so forth. What are the next shoes to drop or that may drop in this, David? Well, David, you're right that the the origin of this is the Russian hack itself, which I don't think was initially intended to help Trump because when it began, it was mid-2015 and nobody really thought that Donald Trump would make it for a month in the campaign. But by the time that Trump emerged, I think the Russian motives changed. And then the question is, come last summer, as we approached the uh, Republican convention and activities that took place at that convention, where I was, among other things, interviewing Donald Trump on questions of what he envisioned the future with Russia to be, and he had a lot of doubts about whether or not the sanctions made any sense, and sort of transcript that reads differently when you go back over it now. At that moment, that's where part two of your structure comes in, which is what were the nature of these communications? And the fundamental question is, was anybody in the campaign helping guide the Russian intelligence services on the question of when and how to release either emails, fake news, whatever. That's the core of the investigation. Would it also be damaging if the Russians were saying to them, we have some stuff, we might release the stuff? If they Depends, were con- depends if- on what they said in, in return and whether or not they were under some responsibility to report a, a crime. I'm not sure the Russians needed to sort of say that at that point because the moment that it got released, it was pretty obvious uh, where this well, was I'm just saying, from. you know, the, the, this issue of collusion, I'm just trying to define it a little bit. Lo- Do lo- any it, of you who – can anybody tell me from a legal or intelligence perspective – what possible explanation the president's son-in-law meeting with bankers subject to sanctions, uh, Russian bankers subject to sanctions? Like, is there is there any plausible reason this could happen? Well, other than talking about lifting sanctions on those Russian banks? Certainly, you can imagine the reason why someone would be meeting with sanctioned individuals if they had reason to believe those sanctions wouldn't be in place for very long. Um, that might skirt some of the legal limits, right? You actually you aren't allowed to do certain business. Uh, look, it's just it's it's more smoke. It's it's sort of it's. You know, there is a huge range of possibilities here. Now, treason is not in that range of possibilities. I know people sort of love to say it's treason, but no, we aren't at war and, and it's it's there's not going to be no one's gonna be indicted or impeached for treason. But there's you know, there's there's sort of the possibility of criminal conduct ranging from violations of the Espionage Act. Certainly this unverified dossier describes, you know, conspiracy and money laundering and uh, you know, solicitation of, of hacking and payments and all these other things. That's kind of on one end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum, and I think it's significant that the other end of the spectrum is not everything is fine and good and there's no, there's nothing, you know, there's there's no problems here. The other end of the spectrum is more sort of mundane violations, things like, you know, uh, FARA violations, right? We saw that Mike Flynn in retro had to retroactively register with FARA. Now, he's not going to he's not going to be criminally prosecuted, but that is a criminal statute. Paul Manafort, uh, it would be pretty surprising uh, if he wasn't potentially in violation of those kinds 
kinds of statutes, not to mention sort of uh, larger suspicions about him. You know, so I, I think the the likelihood is that the where this ends is something more mundane. Um, it's not espionage and sort of this mass conspiracy. The problem is, is that the administration, even if Trump himself is not involved in this stuff, and that's kind of the I think that's going to be the inflection point. You know, what did the president know and when type stuff? Because they are sort of instinctual liars about it. I mean, they lie about stuff that why wouldn't you just say it? There actually isn't anything wrong with the national security advisor, incoming national security advisor, having a conversation with the Russian ambassador. What's wrong about it is lying, lying to the American people, lying to the vice president. There's nothing uh, necessarily wrong with, you know, discussing uh, having sort of wanting to shift on sanctions or wanting to sort of move towards Russia or, or pivot towards Russia. Lots of other presidents have tried to do that. They have never explained why that is sort of to the benefit of the American people. You know, so there are sort of these the ultimate problem here is not, you know, that there's, you know, there's plain criminal conduct and and they're going to get indicted. It's the combination of lots of suspicions about criminal conduct and motivations paired with just completely bizarre behavior in response. Okay, well, so let me try again to break it down, because I'd like to get it to the point that it's, you know, it's a little clearer for listeners. Okay, the best case, as we might speculate as to what the best case is, might be characterized that a number of people around Trump had relationships with a number of people who had interests aligned with Putin, were close to Putin, were had interests aligned with Russian intelligence service, were operated by the Russian intelligence service, and that they had conversations, and that, as a coincidence, they advocated a whole bunch of policies and actions that tended to be much more pro-Russian than anybody in modern American history. That, and that that is ugly, but, but none of it is illegal. Is that the best case? That, that's the best case. And if you were the White House and you were trying to make that case, you think you'd get out ahead of the news by saying, let's give you a list of all of the contacts that we can find that we had between anybody who's in the White House now or the campaign and the Russians. And here it is and it's out there. Instead, their view has been bring us an individual case like the one that they uh, did with the president's son-in-law the other day where the Times came to them and said, here's what we understand and we'll either confirm it or deny it. Well, if you do that, you just keep the story alive for every single news cycle. So if you were going to go for the best case, then go make the best case. They're not making that case. Okay. So if they're not making the case, I mean, presumably there is somebody in the White House that is as smart as David Sanger. No? Nobody? Nobody's it, it wouldn't take much. No. Would, okay. Presumably there is somebody in the White House who may have had this thought relayed to them. Okay. And that, that's not what they're doing. So there must be a reason they're not doing that. And so let's, let's go to the, a likely case. Okay. A likely case that we've just talked about is that because of this back and forth and a number of the things we've already mentioned, that there seemed to be encouragement on the part of the Trump campaign towards what the Russians and WikiLeaks were doing, that there was some communication with noted hackers like Guccifer and, and, and WikiLeaks and, and so forth, 
you know, cut out for the Russians. And because of things like Adam Schiff said, where there seem, he suggests that there is some kind of evidence beyond the circumstantial of collusion, that the most likely next or a, a likely case is that there is some collusion between some people involved in the Trump campaign with the Russians around their hacks and so forth. And there's also a bunch of coziness, which is producing a policy stance, which is kind of ugly. So, Susan, do you agree that's a potentially likely case? And if it were, what what is the consequence of all that? Yeah, so I think that is a potentially likely case. And recall that we now have multiple media reports saying that there's investigations or potentially warrants into uh, not just General Flynn, but Carter Page, uh, Paul Manafort, and Roger Stone, right? So we have four people in, in multiple media reports that are named as sort of targets of, of the inquiry. It seems plausible based on the evidence, if not more and more likely with each passing day, that there is some truth to those allegations. Although, you know, to be responsible, we should say you know, they're just allegations and they're, you know, presumed innocent. This, this podcast has been on the air for over a year. We have never been responsible and we are not going to start now. I withdraw my presumption <laughs> of innocence uh, from any of these people. Right, so look, the the we could talk about the the possible, you know, consequences here of oh, you know, so and so could get you could be indicted, you know, the rumors that potentially it, it might appear as though General Flynn is maybe cooperating with the FBI. Um, because basically he's not appearing on any, he's not being called to testify in any of the places one might assume. Um, so people are reading between the lines, and, and some people are saying that there are there's other indications of that. You know, so that those, those people, including CNN and CNN it, analysts. Exactly. Um, so, you know, right. So you can imagine sort of, you know, sure, maybe there'll be criminal indictments, but I don't think those are things that lead to the impeachment of the president. I don't think the president gets indicted, and, and there's not really any indication that his absolute inner circle is part of this. It's more sort of these fringe or periphery people. So the real calculus here is not one of, of, you know, criminality and whether or not there's going to be a prosecution. It's whether or not cumulatively there is enough political pressure that, that people say, look, this is this is conduct unbecoming of the president of the United States. This is a person who has acted in a way that is so contrary to the pre-political commitments that most Americans share, the things that have nothing to do with being a Republican or a Democrat, but are about believing in free and fair elections and the process and sort of right, these really, really shared commitments to democracy, not to mention lying to the public and all, sort of, and all the ways that they've sort of compounded those sins. We're sort of setting aside the places in which they're erratic and, and dangerous on, on all kinds of other fronts. Whether or not this is going to be the thing that finally that that political pressure becomes unsustainable and congressional Republicans decide that it's their own butts on the line, that they're going to lose Congress, they're not going to get reelected if they don't decide to impeach this guy. That is purely a political calculation. And so we can talk about sort of the bare legalities, but I don't think that's really the big thing most people are interested in here. No, I, I understand that. But I'm just trying to help visualize it for some people. So one possibility that you would play this out is that Roger Stone or Paul Manafort or Carter Page or somebody did something, violated some law, might actually be indicted for something, might, you know, but that that does not necessarily, unless there's a political reason to go along with it, have a direct consequence for Trump, except weakening him. And also, by the way, making it harder for 
Trump to do a lot of the kinds of things he wanted to do with regard to Russia. Well, that's the that's the, I mean, this is in the end, this is sort of a, a foreign policy conversation. I hear it's in the title of the magazine as well, and I yes. think I think this is going to be the biggest single element of this. You're going to see Rex Tillerson be the first administration official to go to Russia. Imagine that you've got to go brief him on what he can tell Putin we're prepared to do. And the answer is, under these circumstances, almost nothing. The thing that Putin cares about the most is getting sanctions lifted. That ain't going to happen in this Congress, even with this this set of Republicans, especially with this set of Republicans. Um, It's hard to imagine President Trump starting any kind of new initiative in arms control or anything else like that, except the possibility of some common effort against ISIS that would begin to build the relationship with Russia that he was envisioning six months ago. Well, so I have this fantasy, Corey. Ordinarily. I'm sorry. Go ahead, David. Well, I just just want to share my fantasy with you. Do we want to hear David's fantasies? Please don't. No, no. It's okay. It's it's okay. Is it a a clean fantasy? That's all I've got. It's a safe space. But my, my fantasy is this, that a president is severely damaged by all of this, and it's not Trump, it's Putin. And here's how that plays out. You know, that's genius. Thank you. Um, thank you. I'll thank stop you. There. I am a genius. <laughs> I'll stop right there. Uh, no, the, 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 but but here's how it plays out. First of all, what David just said, which is Putin interferes in the election, wants to damage the United States. It has two effects. On the one hand, it re-triggers activism, civic awareness, and produces in the United States a new engagement in democracy that actually strengthens the country. Next. It it makes it almost impossible to do anything nice for Russia. Okay. On top of this, by having backed and or tipped the scales in some small way for Trump, um, you've produ- put in the U.S. office a guy who is anathema in Europe, and there is all of a sudden an anti-Trump backlash, where we've seen signs of it in Holland. We uh, are expecting signs of it in France. You may see them in Germany. You may actually see that instead of a right-wing pro-Russian or nationalist pro-Russian wave across Europe, you could see an anti-Trump wave across Europe, which is ne- ne- makes the EU a little stronger and Russia a little bit weaker and so on. And so Putin inadvertently sets in motion a series of things which – undermine his goals. Corey. Just, so Sophocles You've got to give Euripides. her time because she said it was pure genius. Come on, make your case for <laughs> pure genius here so that I can argue with you, Corey. <laughs> so, so I believe that the Greek tragic beauty of David's case, Euripides and Sophocles would be turning cartwheels on the lawn if they could see that Russia's behavior, what they thought was going to be their ace in the hole, their magnificent achievement, turns out to have put in office somebody who who fails, not only fails to do anything positive, but makes it impossible for them to pick up any ground on things they wanted. Hubris so, undoes the king. It's beautiful. It's perfectly fitting. Makes me super happy. But, David... I regret to inform you that the White House <laughs> press spokesman today said that every single person who's been briefed on the Rep- 
on the Russian investigation has co concluded that there is nothing behind it. There's no no collusion. Well, that must so be true. So you may rest assured, yeah. right? Because they never lie. The White House would never lie. And Sean Spicer, who probably doesn't even know what country he's in, um, would would certainly be the most credible possible source on this. Look, I'll add okay, one David, thing. Fire when ready. Okay, David, uh, fire uh, Let me give I'll you. I'll add the, one the, thing uh, to David's list, which okay. you can then uh, I'll throw my lot in with David. Thank to, you, uh, Susan. Uh, so I think there is one more way that he might have uh, Putin might have harmed himself, and that's that for years he has been able to tell the Russian people that the cause of all their ills, the economy, all of sort of these these domestic problems, is this evil person, the evil United States that they hate him, they're sanctioning him. You know, this is their anti-Russia, and, and that's the cause of all the problems. Um, he. He's eliminated the ability to say, you know, hey, this is all about these people hating me. Um, you know, now he might actually have to account for the fact that a lot of the problems are related to systemic corruption. That's what we see. You know, mass protests going on over the weekend are about corruption, cronyism. Uh, there is a, a sense in which he's removed his sort of his his fall guy uh, by electing someone who the Russian people preserve as enormously favorable to him. Yeah. And by the way, the White House... Um, support for the demonstrators was really inspiring. Yeah, wasn't that uh, that State Department uh, statement that came out hours late and grudgingly worded? So let me make it was that, disgraceful. Yeah. So let me make the argument. Let me say this: that I'm hope that David is right, and I suspect that he's a hopeless optimist here. And the reason I suspect it is that I'm thinking about how Putin will spin this. And Putin's spin in Russia will be, I did my best to go try to forge a new relationship with a new American president. And it turns out the new American president's just like the old American president. And while they make all these nice noises to us, all they're interested in doing is keeping Russia down. Because in the end, Putin's only hold on power is not his ability to manage the economy. He can't. Not his ability to bring oil revenue back in with oil prices like this. He can't. It is to cast himself as in opposition to the United States and that this is just reset too, that after going through a brief, yes, let's talk about reset during the early Obama days, he then managed to cast himself as Americans, uh, adv America's adversary and that he'll basically do a version of the same thing again. And the question that is raised by the um, protests is, does, do the Russian people buy it this time? Or do they fundamentally think here that Putin has overplayed his hand? And I pray that they think he's overplayed his hand. Well, I you – know, look, I, I was laying out a fantasy. I described it as a fantasy. But I, I do think that several elements of that fantasy are likely to be true. I think it's – likely that the U.S. will not be doing a bunch of the things that Trump may have wanted to do. It's going to be very hard to lift sanctions or be easier. I agree I with that. I, I think it's also likely that you have an anti-Trump backlash in Europe that has – that affects some outcomes in some elections I think there. that's probable. Right. And, and so some of what Putin wanted seems unlikely to have happened. I, I think these demonstrations are very interesting and worthy of discussion in their own By way. the way, if those things don't happen – Forget that it was a loss for Putin. It's a loss for Steve Bannon, whose vision was that what started with Brexit and accelerated with Trump's election was the beginning of a sweep across Europe. 
He may turn out to be right, but if your fantasy is correct, he may turn out to be wrong. And in some ways, to the United States, whether the Bannon theory of the case works out is sort of more important than whether the Putin theory of the case, although they may be roughly the same theory. Well, I think, you know, part part of the problem with Bannon's theory is he hitched his wagon to the star of Trump. And, you know, all these guys love Putin because he seems to be effective, even though he has no values. The problem with Trump is that he has no values, but he's ineffective. And he's not the kind of person that around which movements like this galvanize. Look, you know, I want to keep going. I want to have more conversation about this. But we have a time limit here at um, the ER. You mean it's uh, when they throw us out of the studio because they want the space? Yeah, exactly. We've got to return it to its use as a phone booth. Um, but for those of you who are millennials out there, go look up what a phone booth is. I know you've never <laughs> seen one, but but it's 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 a fascinating throwback. And if they didn't exist, Superman would have been arrested for indecent exposure long ago. You can look that up too. Uh, in any event, but. The reason we went to two podcasts a week is so we could keep these conversations going. So what I strongly encourage all of you out there to do is to listen into the next podcast because we're going to keep this going in the next podcast. Until Putin gets out of the phone Until booth. Putin gets out of the – oh, <laughs> right. Um, and uh, so, you know, join us again then. It won't be that long from now. In the meantime, thank you, Corey. Thank you, Susan. Thank you, David. And uh, everybody come back real soon to the ER. You have been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I have been your host. Uh, the program is produced by Maria Ori with the assistance of Alex Dorr. For more information about FP and to subscribe to the ER and our Global Thinkers podcast, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you very much for joining us.